Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all of the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, and the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prepared and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, do you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Well, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you sign, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No uh, diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to, to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God whom you serve continually 
been able to deliver you from the lions. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your holy and sacred word, Father. And we pray that, Lord, you would open the word to our hearts and open our hearts to your precious word. Teach us and guide us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. I don't know about you, but every time I hear a story of persecution, I always tremble. When I hear or read about a story of a, a pastor uh, in China, for instance, who is uh, arrested and uh, incarcerated because he preached the gospel, I always tremble. You know, a few years ago uh, uh, at the seminary, one of the classes I taught, there were two, two men from China. And uh, one of them had actually experienced that. Uh, he wasn't arrested, but his pastor was. And uh, he, he had been face-to-face with that kind of thing. And when I hear these stories, I always tremble. When I hear stories of the Islamic State pressing the cold steel of a gun upon the flesh of a brother or sister in the Lord and commanding them to renounce Christ or else, uh, I always tremble. And I, I tremble for the same reason I, I suppose you probably tremble as well. I, I tremble because of the trauma they're facing. But I also need to be honest here. There's another reason that I tremble. I tremble because I, I sometimes wonder what I would do if I were in their place. Do you ever wonder that? If the authorities were to barge in here right now, and give us the ultimatum of either to renounce Christ or be carried away, what would we do? If the authorities were to barge in here right now and say, renounce Christ or lose everything that you've spent your life working for, what would you do? The reason this frightens me is because I know how wayward my heart is. The thought frightens me because I have fallen to so many lesser trials than that. Haven't you? I've succumbed to sin when the stakes were so much lower. Our hearts are 
are bent on evil and ever ready to compromise. And as we come to Christ, we're, we're, we're removed. The, the, the dominion of sin is taken away, but there's still a remnant of sin that dwells in our hearts, isn't there? That old man, as Paul calls it, uh, he or she continues uh, to raise his or her head. So, um, yeah, I think you can tell where I'm going with this. I mean, the subject I'm headed with this is the subject of compromise. Compromise. I mean, that's what it comes down to. To compromise or not to compromise. And I don't want to just talk about compromise this morning for the sake of compromise. I don't think that would be very beneficial to us. Uh, that would leave a stinger in our hearts, but it wouldn't remove it. It wouldn't give it any, any grace. Uh, the, the subject of this morning's message, no, is overcoming compromise. Well, what I would like to do this morning is just look at Daniel 6. We're not going to be able to look at all of it in one single message, but I want to look at it just really briefly this morning with the eye of what it teaches us about overcoming compromise. Does that sound simple enough? Let's begin with verse 1. In verse 1, Daniel finds himself under the authority of another kingdom. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because when we were studying chapter 2, what did we learn? God had made it clear that the Babylonian kingdom would fall, hasn't it? Daniel's fully expecting it to fall. I don't know that he was necessarily expecting at that time to fall in his lifetime, but I think through his study of Jeremiah, he, probably, he certainly, certainly was. And what we need to be mindful of now, and you can lose track as you're reading the Bible, is that 70 years, approximately 70 years now, has elapsed since Daniel was carried off into Babylon. And Daniel was probably in his early 80s at this point, uh, somewhere in, in his 80s uh, at this point when this takes place. And uh, he's now uh, no longer under uh, the Babylonian king, he's under the uh, kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And we find here that uh, Daniel's policy has not changed. I mean, under Babylon, under the kings of Babylon, Daniel was very faithful, wasn't he? He was very faithful. He faithfully followed the Lord, which meant that he pretty much submitted to, uh, to the king of Babylon. He pretty much submitted. And here we see that he is uh, doing the same under Darius. It's pretty much business as usual. And in verse 1, we find Darius setting up his kingdom. He has set up 120 satraps. That's a strange word to us. Uh, a satrap is simply a governor. Uh, and in this context, these are governors of the various provinces of the Medo-Persian Empire, which is huge and encompassed the known world at the time. This is an enormous empire. So Darius is setting up these governors, these satraps, if you will, and they're to basically govern their various provinces. And then uh, Darius, over top of the 120 satraps, is setting up three uh, presidents, if you will, who will govern the satraps for the purpose, we're told in verse 2, so that the king may suffer no loss. Now, <laughs> when we read those words, you know, uh, we're reminded of uh, often the political arena. It's, it's really uh, corruption and bribery and the likes and, and, the, and the political arena today is nothing new. 
nothing new at all. Here we see it was alive and well way back in Daniel's day. Sometimes when we look back on the old days, we reminisce and we can lose track of the fact that, you know, there, were, there was plenty of corruption to go around in the old days as well uh, as there is in the current hour. But Daniel here is a shining exception. You know, so shining a jewel was Daniel that verse 3 tells us that Darius wanted to set Daniel over the entire uh, kingdom. Why? If you look at verse 3, it's because an excellent spirit was in him. You see those words? Now, how does this go over with the other officials? Are they happy about this? No. They're not happy about this at all. Verse 4, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regards uh, to the kingdom. Uh, what's that mean? Well, they're, they're scratching their hands. They're looking at each other and saying, we're going to need to find some dirt on this guy. We're all going to be serving him. Uh, We've got to find some dirt. We've got to smear this guy. Get something together. We need some negative ad campaigns going on on this, on this character. We need to convince the king and convince the populace that he's not the guy for the job. That's what's going on. It has a, kind of reminds you of much of what's going on today. You know, the difference between us and our ancient counterparts really comes down to the clothes we're wearing, the cars we're driving, and the houses we're living in. Uh, the human heart is still the same, isn't it? It doesn't change. That's why the Word of God always speaks to us in every generation. Now, what's their motive? Why do they want to smear Daniel? Well, it's probably a combination of jealousy and frustration. Jealousy? I mean, Daniel's that foreigner. They point that out, this uh, Judean, you know, who's, who was exiled. Oh, he's, he's a foreigner. He's, he's just everything he does prospers. And, you know, he's always so squeaky clean. We can't stand that. And look, I mean, he's so in with the, he's so in with the king, he's going, to be, he's going to be on top. I don't want Daniel to be on top. Well, that's the jealousy part. What about the frustration part? Well, I think with Daniel around, it's probably pretty hard to pull some of those underhanded uh, deals that, are, uh, so, uh, that, that, that occur so often in these kinds of places. It'd be pretty tough to get away with this stuff with Daniel around. He's not going to go for this. He's not going to go for that. He's not going to go for this. We've got to get rid of him. Yeah, but their problem is they can't find anything because Daniel was faithful. In verse 5, they reach the conclusion, really, that they're not going to be able to smear him unless they entrap him in his faith. And they show themselves to be quite clever here. You know, they're watching Daniel very closely. And they've observed this about Daniel. Daniel has a high allegiance to King Darius. It's very clear. In fact, we can't even find any fault in Daniel in terms of his allegiance to Darius. Can't find anything. But there's one thing that we've noticed about Daniel. His allegiance to Darius is his secondary allegiance. Now, the, Darius isn't what comes first in Daniel's life. Almighty God is the one who comes first. If we can contrive of a law that would run in opposition to the law of Daniel's God, and if we could have that law entered into uh, uh, the law of the Medes and the Persians, if you will, if we could legislate that into action, then we would force Daniel to forsake the king. 
And that's exactly what they do, isn't it? They start by going to Darius and they lie to him. Look at verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. Verse 7. All of the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish a law. What law? A law that would forbid anyone in the kingdom to pray to anyone else but Darius. Now, I said that they start by lying. Well, how are they lying? They're, well, they're saying that they're all in agreement, right? Is Daniel included in this? Would Daniel have given his consent to this? They're not all in agreement to this. <laughs> this is very wicked. I mean, it, it, we could say a lot about this wickedness. In fact, we could, we, could, we, could, we could consume many sermons just with this wickedness. Let me just add this. You know, these people are schismatic. They're divisive. And the Apostle Paul says to us in Titus 3.11 that those who are divisive are warped and sinful and self-condemned. In fact, in the verse that comes before that, uh, Paul tells us in that verse uh, to issue a warning once, issue a warning twice, and if they don't heed twice, have nothing to do with them. There's one of the passages of Scripture where we get this idea, listen, there are some people, after you've warned them once, after you've warned them twice, you really ought not have anything to do with them. Sometimes it's hard for us to get in our minds. We, 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 you know, we need to love our enemies, we need to do this, we need to do that. You know, Paul's warning us, listen, these characters don't have any more to do with them. And that's exactly what's taking place here. Well, in verse 9, what does Darius do? He hears this idea. What's he do? He signs the document. You know, he enacts this uh, legislation into law. Why does he do it? Well, his true motives are known only to the Lord, but some conjecture that he did this for lust of being worshipped as God. And of course, it's it's objected by many that, well, I mean, why would he do that? I mean, it's only for 30 days. I mean, that seems kind of silly, and I, 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 that doesn't seem to be his primary motive. So others will say, well, his primary motive was to really, it wasn't worship, it was politics. And I think that's what's going on here. Put yourself in Darius' shoes. You are the king of the whole world at this point. The biggest problem you have is keeping the whole world united. You know, after the Tower of Babel, that's pretty hard to do, isn't it? Because God has confused the language. He's created confusion. Uh, here we have all this chaos, and the devil is making use of all this chaos just to create all kinds of mischief, evil and wickedness. And here you are, King Darius. You're, you're trying to keep everything united. And then all of a sudden, all, your, all of your, your, your officials come to you and say, hey, you know, I think what you ought to do is enact this law. You know, it's our idea. We're all agreed here. Enact this law, and then you can be the mediator of our prayers. Everyone will have to pray to you. Everyone will have to pray through you. I think it's politically motivated. Well, King Darius said, well, you know, for the next month, I'm good to go. We're going to be united. So he signs it into, into law. Now, with this wicked concoction now signed... Uh, the narrative turns its attention to Daniel. And we're told in verse 10 that Daniel, was, Daniel knows about the law, right? He knows about it. Now here's the question. What will Daniel do? I mean, it's only for the next 30 days. We say, well, you know, I think 
Maybe I gotta go see my friends, you know, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe we need to get together, have a little powwow. You know about this prayer stuff. Maybe we ought to knock this off for about a month. It's only a month, and a month will soon come and soon go. You know, times are flying. Seems like just yesterday we were brought here, and now here we are. Now we're under another administration. We'll just ride this thing out for about a month, 30 days. I mean, after all, God wouldn't want us in the lion's den. And we would, you know, and the practicality of it all is we're not going to be able to serve anybody in the lion's den. We, we can't serve anybody if we're all chewed up in the lion's den. You see how easily I think we could have discussed this today. How easily we could have compromised on this. Really, I think we could have compromised on it. Really thinking we were, doing a, we're being faithful, we're doing a great service. How does, how does Daniel, who, when it comes to terms, I mean, apart from Christ, in terms of the saints that are, that are listed in the Bible, you realize Daniel is one of, the few, one of the few saints of which nothing, there's no reprimand. The Bible is silent. He's never reprimanded in Scripture. An extraordinary faithful man. How does he think about this? What does he do? Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10 tells us that he thinks completely opposite of what I've just suggested. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, there's, there's several things we need to see from from all of this. Uh, for the most part, we need to be reminded, and that was, I think, a struggle for us early on, but we need to be reminded that Daniel, you know, when he's carried off into Babylon, he doesn't lead a revolt, does he? Remember we talked about that. It's been a number of weeks ago, but we talked about that. He pretty much submits to the, to the king of Babylon, doesn't he? And of course he does, because Jeremiah in his prophecy the Lord had told the people of God to do that uh, through the word of Jeremiah. Uh, no, Daniel actually excels. Uh, Daniel pretty much, he submits to King Nebuchadnezzar, he submits to the kings of Babylon, and now he, here Daniel is under the Medes and Persians, and, and you know, he, he, he's pretty much, he pretty much submits. But here in chapter 6, he will not submit. And that brings us to the, really the first point that you might want to write down. I'm going to give you five of them. You might want to write this one down. We are to submit to government until government commands us to do that which God has forbidden. That's probably not a new idea to many of you, but it's good to be reminded of it from time to time. You know, we're to submit to government until government commands us to do that which God has forbidden. We could think of the, apostle, the apostles Peter and John along these lines. You know, in Acts chapter 4, you know, the, the religious authorities at that time are telling the apostle Peter and John, listen, you've got to pipe it down about Jesus. We don't want to hear any more about this teaching about Jesus. You, know, you just stop it. And uh, uh, what do they say in response? They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. Now, mind you, Peter in his letters... In his letters, he tells us to honor the emperor, which is an astounding claim for Peter. 
the, the, the emperor was, was, was extraordinarily wicked and extraordinarily hostile to the Christian faith at that time. And what does Peter say? Honor the emperor. But here, Peter is not willing to submit. Why? Because these authorities were telling him to do something contrary to what Christ had commanded him to do. What's Christ told Peter to do? Go forth throughout the whole world. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John aren't willing to submit to this, and Daniel is not willing to submit to it either. The second thing we need to see here is Daniel's not showboating. Sometimes people will get the idea that Daniel's showing off. He's got the window open, and he's grandstanding here, and uh, some are, are given to do. He's grandstanding his faith, you know. Uh, that, that's not what's taking place here. If you look at the last phrase of verse 10, you see the words, as he had done previously. This is the way Daniel had been praying before the injunction. Daniel doesn't alter it in any way. He doesn't change it at all. So he didn't open the window in order to show off. The third thing here is Daniel resumes worship as, as business as usual. If you look there at verse 10, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Now, we don't have any command from Scripture to pray three times a day, but it's a great practice, and that's what the psalmist does in, in Psalm 55, verse 17, evening and morning at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice three times a day. Another thing that's remarkable here, fourth thing, is that Daniel's prayer is full of thankfulness. You know, Daniel's the wisest man in the kingdom, clearly. Could he have not known that he was being watched? Surely he knew he was being watched. But he left the window open. And he had to realize that his enemies are going to be ratting him out anytime soon, sometime soon. That's all to say that he probably realizes in all likelihood he's headed to the lion's den. And he's given thanks to, the God, to God. Isn't that amazing? And then the fifth one, he embraces and follows the word of God. I remember years ago reading this story and thinking to myself, Daniel, why didn't you just shut the window? I mean, Daniel, I mean, really, okay, just shut the window. I mean, when we go in our houses, nobody knows what we're doing. Just go inside and, and uh, pray three times or ten times a day. Pray as much as you want. Who would be the wiser? Who would know? I mean, why has Daniel got the window open towards Jerusalem? Why is it open? It's open because Daniel is embracing a promise that's given through King Solomon. During the dedication, hundreds of years earlier, during the dedication of the temple, King Solomon, when he prayed during that dedication ceremony, he prayed like this. He anticipated that Israel would sin against God and be carried away. And in his prayer, he prayed, quote, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. 
When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, listen to this. If they pray towards this place, what's this place? The temple in Jerusalem. If they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. There is no doubt that that is the promise that Daniel had embraced. That window's open. He's praying towards this place to Almighty God, and he has an injunction. He has a clear promise from the Word of God that when he repents, praying towards Jerusalem, God will hear his prayer and forgive him and forgive his people. And there is no edict of any king that's going to change that or alter his practice in any way. That's why the windows are open. Daniel is heeding the word of God. Now, we could say um, a lot more about that, but let's, let's take a look at verse 11. Daniel's enemies, they find Daniel praying before God, right? And notice that they came by agreement. You see, that comes up a couple of times in the text, this idea of them coming by agreement. You know, they're conspiring together. It kind of makes you think of Psalm 2. I almost used Psalm 2 as our call to worship this morning, namely verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. You know, we rightfully apply these verses to Christ. And then we would say the Lord's anointed with a capital A. Uh, but in this context, Daniel is the Lord's anointed with a lowercase a. And they are conspiring against him to destroy him, aren't they? They run off to Darius. The first thing they do is remind Darius of the injunction. Hey, King Darius, you remember that thing you signed in the law the other day? You know that thing about... Uh, Praying through you, no prayers being offered to anybody but uh, through you. You remember that one? Yeah, okay, I remember that one. Okay, verse 13. You know this Daniel character? You know the one you prize so highly, the one you want to make, you know, really the commander-in-chief of the whole land? He doesn't pay any attention to you. He doesn't pay any attention to your laws. In fact, he doesn't just disobey them once a day. He disobeys them three times a day. How does the king respond to that? Interestingly enough, the king is distressed. So I think that's an important issue here too. The king cares about Daniel. Why would the king care about Daniel? Because Daniel has demonstrated over and over again that he cares about the king. That's an important point not to miss. Now, the king, uh, you know, he could remove the edict if he wanted, but it would be a big challenge to his authority. So in order to save face, what's he do? Ultimately, what's he do? We're told that he labors all day to try to find a way to get Daniel out of this. But it would come at a great political cost to him if he did. So in order to save face, Daniel was ordered to the lion's den. And a stone is set over the entrance, and notice it's sealed with the king's seal and with the seal of his lords. So here Daniel has met his fate. He refused to compromise, completely refused to compromise. Now he's locked into a dark pit with hungry and vicious lions. Daniel here has chosen a horrible death. Instead of giving up praying three times a day 
to the Lord Almighty. Now, what are we to glean from this? Well, we could glean a lot from this, more than I'm going to cover in the next few minutes, but I, I, I think at the start we, should, we, we really should acknowledge and confess that Daniel very clearly has an, a, an, a, a devotion and an adoration and a commitment to service here that is very much missing from 21st century uh, Christian culture. Would we all be agreed there? You might say, well, we, you know, that's Daniel. I mean, who could compare to Daniel? Well, let's, let's just look around the world. I mentioned a student that I had in China, from China. His intentions were to come here, get an education, and you know what his intentions were after he got that education? The pastor, the church, the church where he saw his pastor incarcerated for doing what? Preaching the gospel. It's an amazing thing for me to be teaching him, you know. I mean, I found it really um, humbling to be teaching this, this fellow. I would often wonder when I, looked, uh, when I looked at him, would I be willing to go to China? Would I be willing to do that? You see, it's the same adoration, the same devotion. It's the same commitment to service, this singularity. He was in possession of it. You could clearly see it. And I talked with him quite a bit in the 10 weeks I had him for class. He really was culture shocked when he came here. He came here thinking that he was going to be rubbing elbows with an entire society of people like him. He got a big surprise. And actually, one of the big threats for these students coming over here and studying, you know what the biggest threat is? They stay here. Many of them come from China. They come over here, they get their education because they want to study in some of our seminaries, and they never go back home. So I think the first thing we got to do here is we have to confess that something's missing. Now, let's ask ourselves, what's keeping us from experiencing this? What's keeping us from experiencing this very thing that we see in Daniel's life? What is keeping us from experiencing it? Well, what's keeping us from experiencing it is the same very thing that caused Israel to be carried off into Babylon in the first place. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. I'll give you an example. Let me flesh this out. In, a, in, a, in his recent book, Honest Evangelism, by uh, Rico Tice, and I, I highly recommend that book, actually. Uh, someone sent me an email about that book, and I, uh, I digitally downloaded it onto my Kindle, and I, I got it in the evening. I think Friday evening I read it, and I think Saturday I finished the book. I couldn't stop reading it. It's not very long, but Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice. In that book, he devotes an entire chapter around this question, why we still won't evangelize. In other words, why won't we tell people about Jesus? Why won't we tell people about the problem we have with sin? Why won't we tell people the, 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 the issue we have is we're evil and we're bent on doing wrong? Why won't we tell people that our only Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ? Why won't we really go down into the nitty-gritty of the gospel? Why won't we do that? 
And in order to answer that question, he is amazingly transparent. He tells a story from his own life about being at the side of his grandmother while she was in the last week of her life. Listen to what he writes. He writes, quote, In the week before my grandmother died, I did not speak to her about Jesus. I loved her, but I didn't say anything to her. When my other grandmother had died, I'd taken her hand and prayed with her, but not that grandmother. I just let her go. Why didn't I tell her about Christ? I've come to realize that I was afraid of what she'd say and I was afraid of what my family would say because I knew they'd think it was inappropriate and unhelpful. I was afraid. I loved my grandmother. She loved me. But the hard truth is I love myself more than her. I wanted my family to think well of me more than I wanted her to think of Christ as her Savior. That's why I didn't speak to her. I loved myself more than I loved her and more than I loved my Lord. And that means my family's respect and having an easy time in life had become idols to me. End of quote. What caused Rico's compromise? Love of Rico. I, I, I don't know about you, but it's tough to read these words and not be stung by this. And his intention is not to beat people down. He says that in the chapter. I don't want to beat you down. But I'm not going to hide the issue here. This is the issue. Why do we compromise? It's because of idols. What are idols? How do we identify them? We identify them by, they're the things that we, when we're disobeying Christ, they're the things that we're holding on to. They're the things that we'd rather have than obey Christ. Those are our idols. They're the things that we don't want to lose for Jesus. They're the things we're not willing to risk for Him. Okay, enough about that. How do we overcome this? See why I say, see why I say I want to talk about how to overcome this? I don't want to just identify the problem, dismiss you, and leave you like that. I don't want to be left like that. How do we overcome this? Well, to overcome this, we have to get Christ in the center of our hearts. We have to get Christ in the center of our hearts. This is not something we do once. It's not something we do today. And then good, we're good to go. Grace now in the center and away we go. That's not what we do. It's, it's an everyday struggle to get Christ in the center of your heart. And if any of you are in tune with what I'm saying, you already know this. It's an everyday struggle. It's an every hour struggle to get Christ in the center of your heart. But how do we do it? And how does our text contribute to it? Well, let's let the rays of the New Testament, let's let the light of the New Testament shine down upon this Old Testament story. Just for review, Daniel's given over to state authority by his enemies, right? He's given over to Darius by his enemies, correct? He's thrown into a pit. The pit is sealed with the king's rings. And at the dawn of the morning, Daniel comes out of the pit unscathed. Does any of this sound familiar? Is there a story in the New Testament that kind of sounds like this? Jesus is handed over to Pontius Pilate by his enemies. Isn't he? He's falsely charged. You know, and as Darius, he tried to get Daniel. He would like to have gotten Daniel off the hook, wouldn't he? But he loved his political position. He loved the, the, the politics just won out. In order to save face, you know, Daniel had to go to the pits. Sorry, Daniel. What about Pontius Pilate? 
It's exactly the same thing, isn't it? So he's given over to be crucified. Now, there's, now we come to one big difference. Daniel come out unscathed, didn't he? Did Jesus come out unscathed? Jesus suffered unimaginable pain. For what purpose? It's to come and claim you and come and claim me and rid each one of us from our idols. That was the purpose. And at the end of his suffering, he cried out, it is finished, didn't he? What is finished? Salvation is accomplished. It is accomplished. He was placed in the grave and on the third day he's raised from the dead. Now he's free to claim you and me as his own. He has given his life he suffered unimaginably in order to cleanse you and me from the very idols that are causing us to compromise all over the place. This is what he came to do. Now, what is he doing in our hearts? What is Jesus doing in our hearts? He is systematically exposing the idols of our hearts as we walk through this life. He could show us today every idol and every sin that we, that we commit every day. He could show it all to us at once if He wanted to, but He doesn't do that. He's aware of it all. He took the punishment for it all, but He doesn't do that. He very lovingly comes alongside each one of us, and He knows each one of us so very well that he reveals just the right idol at just the right time so that he can walk alongside of us and deal with these things systematically. And this morning as we hear all this stuff and we get uncomfortable about this stuff, what is happening? He is doing exactly this. I don't know what's making you uncomfortable this morning, but I hope something is. And I, I don't set out in my study and say, okay, what am I going to do to make everybody uncomfortable this Sunday? That's not what I do. What I mean by that is I hope that God is working in your heart. Pointing to one of these things. Or maybe a couple of these things. Because if that's the case, if you're feeling uncomfortable right now, take joy in that. Because Christ, the surgeon, is working on your heart right now. Exposing that idol which must be dealt with. How do we deal with it? How do we overcome that idol that's causing the compromise? Looking to the cross. You see, Jesus knows about that idol. He knows about that idol. He knows about all the idols. And that didn't stop him from coming and seeking you out, did it? No, he's got grace for you. He wants to cleanse you of all those idols. You see, we have to understand this about Jesus. We have to understand that love that's beyond comprehension, but we're not going to come to Him. We're going to want to hide these idols. We're going to want to deal with them ourselves and then come to Him when we think we got them all gone. No, it'll never happen. We've got to for come forth, come be forthcoming with these idols. And we repent of these idols. And we ask the Lord for His grace to overcome these idols. You know what happens as we do this? Jesus moves closer to the center. See, when Jesus is close to the center, 
we're not willing to compromise on much. We're only willing to compromise as Jesus gets pushed away from the center. But as we confess these idols in faith to a Savior who loves us and adores us, He moves closer to the center. And as He moves closer to the center, we're not willing to compromise. I'll leave you with one last thought about compromise. You know, it's today, this afternoon as we leave from here, I don't think any of us have really any danger of being thrown in a lion's den. And I'm speaking literally. If I, I, I wouldn't say this so quickly metaphorically, but I'm speaking literally. And what I mean by that is today we're probably not going to face the biggest trials of our life, although that's possible. It's possible. But what's more probable is today you're going to face a lesser temptation. And when you face that temptation, you're going to be tempted to compromise with it. What do you do? Stop right there. As soon as you're tempted to toy with compromise, stop, ask yourself this question. Why am I doing this? Why am I compromising? Why am I tempted to compromise? What is it that I'm holding on to that I would even flirt with the idea of sinning against a Savior that loves me so very much? And when you answer that question, you've identified an idol in your heart. And confess it before God right there. Confess it to Him. Because it's grace. Don't run from Jesus and hide from it. Confess it to Him because it's grace. It's grace to be instructed in this way. It's grace. Say, Lord, it's, it's this hideous idol. I'm ashamed that I lift it to you. Take it away. He will. He's the one that exposed it to you in the first place. That's how we grow in the Lord. Now, as we do this in the little things, we get stronger in the little things. And... We are prepared to do this in the bigger things. And as we do this in the bigger things, we get stronger at the bigger things. And as we get stronger at the bigger things, guess what? We're ready for the lion's den. Amen? Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we thank you and praise you for this word. There's so much more that could be said here this morning, Father. So much more could be gleaned. Well, Father, we thank you for what you've given us. We thank you, Father. Oh, Lord, our hearts are, are indeed pricked by this, uh, by this, this chapter, Father. Uh, indeed, we tremble as we think, Father, of, of these trials and as we think of our wayward hearts, as we think, Father, of how we're so prone, Father. If, if you should let us go, we would, we would, we would quickly flee from you, Father. But we are thankful, Lord, that you, you don't let us go. You won't let us go. That if it is truly you who's working in our hearts, you will, you will complete the work. You will take it to completion. And we thank you, Father. Lord, we ask that you would reveal our idols to us, Father. Reveal these things. For there's not a perfect heart in this room. That means there's idols in our hearts, Father. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would reveal these idols to us. And that, Father, you would give us victory in the small things. And that you would later give us victory in the bigger things, Father. 
that, oh, Father, we would be prepared for the, the biggest trial and the largest trials of, of our lives. So, Father, we look to you as we um, take this word of overcoming, our, overcoming compromise, Father. Make us into those who refuse to compromise for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.